pre-dropped here, no doubt. Yeah, pre-dropped. Whoa, that thing came out sideways. Drove it into the penalty area. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that was a shank. It's hard to believe watching this. It made an unbelievable bogey in the drop zone. What's up, folks? Good evening. Happy Sunday, I guess. Happy Monday by the time this gets to your airwaves. Um, Dylan DeChair here, coming to you from sunny Seattle, Washington. We're going to do something that we tried once earlier this summer, and I thought it was pretty fun. But now, given the time uh, difference between myself on the West Coast of the U.S. and Sean Zock, my co-host who is posted up in England, hopefully sleeping off a couple Pim's Cups over there, he is going to join us first thing in the morning. He's left a few questions for me to answer. I'm leaving a few questions for him to answer, five to be specific. Uh, To recap, what was a fascinating week in the world of golf? Um, Specifically, the U.S. Women's Open was the headliner at Pebble Beach, uh, but then also some intriguing action across the rest of the tours. So, yeah, let's get to it. I didn't, I was was slated to make an appearance at Pebble Beach this week, but had a little... uh, Illness-related sitch didn't end up going down. Moral of the story is watched a lot of U.S. Women's Open on TV, which was a uh, really enjoyable experience in a totally different way. Looked phenomenal. Um, Sean said he did not get to watch as much of that. And actually, that transitions us right into our first of three questions. But the first one is a three-part question. So a three-part question plus two other questions equals five total answers uh, and Sean's first question is look I didn't get to watch that much of the U.S. Women's Open what are the three things that I missed the most and I think you have to start first and foremost with the venue uh, first time that the Women's Open has ever been played at Pebble Beach. Of course, the men have been there for six U.S. Opens and one PGA Championship, I believe. So they've been there seven times. And it's pretty simple. The stage elevates the entire event. Um, the U.S. Women's Open means something. Just the the event itself, that gets it to a certain level. But there's no question that playing on a big-time course, on a course people know... Pebble may be the course that people know the most, maybe second most behind Augusta National. Uh, The seventh hole at Pebble is, again, top three or five most well-known holes in the world, and it could be number one. Um, So there's there's an iconography that exists at Pebble Beach that makes the entire event feel bigger, makes people more likely to relate to each shot that's being hit. And you had women playing in the event talking about this all week. Uh, even Allison Corpus in her, in her winner's interview was talking about just how much that elevates the event. Um, so let's get specific. I mean, what does that mean? For me, that meant being even more eager to turn on the early round streaming, uh, to flip on Peacock, to watch uh, watch the women playing a course that I already knew, um, turning on some featured groups to watch, gosh, Lexi Thompson, Nellie Korda, uh, and Jin Young Ko playing in a threesome, and 
actually really struggling their way around the course on Thursday. Um, and then seeing some of the lesser known players rocketing up the leaderboard, it made a few of the storylines more intriguing. Like, you know, yes, we, we, we were missing Jin Young Ko. We were missing Nelly Korda. We were missing Lexi Thompson in contention. We got some Rose Zhang, um, but she was always close to the lead, but never quite threatening the lead. So instead, it was lesser-known golfers, and it was Pebble Beach, the venue, and the U.S. Women's Open, the event that really elevated them. So we had Bailey Tardy, the American, who has been so close to making it onto the LPGA Tour, uh, missing by heartbreakingly thin margins the last few years, and finally getting her card this year playing really good golf the first two days and then kind of hanging on on the weekend to finish T4. Like her, her, this was a coming out moment for Bailey Tardy. Um, G.A. Shin, who hasn't quite earned Anthony Kim levels of, um, you know, rising to the top and then vanishing, but has a fascinating story. I think she's 35 years old now. Uh, she's from South Korea. And she came over and played the LPGA Tour as a young phenom. Um, she'd experienced a, a bunch of heartbreak as a teenager. Her mom died in a car crash right as she was really beginning to hit her star uh, in high school. Became a terrific Korean LPGA player and then came over and played in the U.S. and played around the world on the LPGA Tour. Won two uh, women's British Opens. She was a two-time major champ. And then she basically bounced. She just called it. She wanted to be closer to family. Uh, she went back and played a lot of her golf in Japan. She's won over 60 times worldwide. Um, most recently, she won back in uh, Australia, the women's uh, women's component of the uh, Aussie Open that they play down there. And this was the first time that she'd played in the U.S. at all since 2019. So she's 35 now. She said she got caught up early in the week looking around at uh, all the, the swing speed, at the athleticism, the youth around her. And she said that actually messed her up a little bit the first couple rounds. But when it came time, she really showed up. I think she's known as the final round queen. Some epic nickname like that. And sure enough... On Sunday, she shot 68, which is the second low round of the day. Um, got really damn close. She finished tied for second at six under. And it was this throwback to to this woman who at one point was playing better golf than probably anyone else in the world. And to see her have this second act was really cool and something that I did not at all have on my radar uh, also, shout out to Charlie Hull, the uh, the British golfer who finished T2, who shot 66, six under, one off the best round, best final round that anyone has ever shot in the U.S. Women's Open. And she was her round was really characterized by, well, one, making just a ton of putts, and two, dropping the line, shy kids don't get sweets in her, uh, in her English accent on the 18th fairway as she decided to take on the famous, you know, Tiger Woods fairway wood shot underneath the tree going for the 18th green. She hooked it left 
in the bunker, did not pull the shot off. But the fact that she went for it, the fact that she had that fire, um, and still ended up making par and finishing tied for second. But the fact that she took that on, that was worth celebrating. Um, so, yeah, I would say that that was the way that Pebble Beach delivered was not just the epic drone shots, and it was that, not just the uh, the course that we know and love, but the way that course elevates all the storylines around it. So that's thing number one. Thing number two would be Michelle Wee West and her send-off on Friday. It was a bummer that she didn't play a little bit better, that she didn't score a little bit lower, that she was not around for the weekend but it was also, I guess, a, a fine way to go out in the sense that Friday afternoon and evening belonged to Michelle. So I think that we can be honest about her career and just how complex it was. And I think she herself this week has been uh, reflective about that. There was a video that the USGA put out where Michelle was shown old highlights of herself. And I really appreciated the way she said look, it hasn't all been good. It hasn't all been good. And we have watched her grow up. She's a couple years older than I am. I remember when she was, you know, 13 and 14 being like, what on earth is this? How is this a, how is this someone that is only a couple years older than me doing these things, playing as a woman on the PGA tour, playing as a, as a teenage girl on the PGA tour, The fact that she made it out as a well-adjusted individual, never mind a good golfer, is, I don't know if it's miraculous, but it's certainly great. It's a great thing. The fact that she won a U.S. Women's Open, thank goodness, because that changes the way we will look at her career for forever. The fact that she only won five times in the LPGA Tour Yes, unquestionably, that is lower than it feels like it should be. Uh, when you look at the the girl that started out, the girl that teed it up at the Sony Open, 14 years old, when you look at that golf swing and that player, you'd think, wow, she is going to be a world beater for as long as she wants to be. Um, but there's something real about the way it panned out, the way that didn't happen, the way, yeah, the way we don't have to pretend that it was all perfect, uh, but instead can appreciate her career for what it was, can appreciate the effect she had on the game, the way she made people tune in, the way she handled it all and has grown up in front of our eyes and become this cool ambassador for the game, I guess. Um, so to see her tee it up this week was really cool. She shot 79, 79. Uh, She was not close to making the cut, but the way she finished off her round on the 18th green on Friday night, making a 31 foot putt for par after really making nothing either day um, was just pretty special, pretty neat. And I was definitely was, was glad to watch that because it was a good chance to get closure. That was what struck me was I hope that it was a chance for her to get closure too because the way her career went, the way injuries took over, the way she struggled with certain things, we got this sense that, okay, this is 
ending quicker than we thought it would. Uh, but we didn't necessarily get that bookend moment where we could stop and appreciate Michelle for what she'd done. Here, there was no question from pretty early on in the event that she was going to be a factor competitively. Um, so it became a chance to celebrate what she's done and uh, really just wish all the best to her going forward. Who knows? Maybe there's a second act. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's some time down the road. You never say never. She even acknowledged you never say never. Um, but for now it seems like she's in a pretty good spot and, and that finish was pretty special to watch. And then the third thing would be Allison Corpus, our champion shot 69, 70, 71, 69, incredibly steady golf over four days, nine under par, um, first American winner here in, I think seven years. And there was some really cool symmetry with her and Michelle Wee. Uh, Michelle Wee went to the Punho School in Hawaii, was the first Hawaiian major champion. Uh, she won in 2014. In 2014, Allison Corpus won the Hawaii State Open. She was in high school at Punahou, the same school that Michelle Wee went to, the same school that Barack Obama also went to. And so the way this panned out for this to be Michelle's final major championship, we think, uh, for that to be Allison's first major victory. That's a pretty nice way to bookend the week, um, with an, an ending for Michelle and a beginning for this, this young woman who idolized her growing up, who, uh, broke her record as the youngest girl to win the Publinks at age 10 back in the day who followed her footsteps, through high school, uh, now onto the LPGA tour. So she was unflappable. She was really good. She made a bunch of clutch mid-length par putts on Sunday. Um, and when the tournament could have gone either way, she slammed the door with birdie at 14, with birdie at 15 to build her lead to four shots to, uh, yeah, to get to 10 under par. She bogeyed 17, but then no worries, took an aggressive line left of the tree on 18, stuck it in tight, had a good look at birdie, um, but finished it off in really just unflappable fashion and then got to show off her personality in the press conference afterwards. So she seems like a uh, pretty cool person. Cracked me up when she was told that Barack Obama had tweeted out congratulations in her direction as a fellow Hawaiian and she, she said that he had accomplished a lot in his career. So that was pretty special. So she's the master of understatement. Uh, she, she certainly was a low-key presence for much of the round, but you could see afterwards how much it meant to her. So those are my three storylines from the LPGA. It's more like probably snuck in about five or six storylines there. Rose Zhang, also another top 10 at a major championship. Two for two as a professional. Uh, certainly no signs that her star ascent is anything but on the right track. So good event, worthy champion. I'm sorry that Sean did not get to watch more of it. Here's Sean bright and early Monday morning coming to you from England. All right. Hello folks. Sean Zock here. Uh, if I sound tired, it's because it's six in the morning in London, I just woke up. 
Um, and I'm on the road to Scotland today via train. So I guess I'm on the train tracks, not on the road. But um, yeah, getting these answers out to you so that you have something lovely to wake up to Monday morning, wherever you hail from. Um, so thank you to Dylan for five questions. I've got five questions. And uh, let's just get into them. How do the winds from Sepp Straka and Rasmus Hoygaard affect the European Ryder Cup picture? It's a good question. Um, my answer to that is that they make Luke Donald's job easier, dot, 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 for now. And uh, what I mean when I say that is that Luke Donald's job to this point has, has been looking at a, a team with like seven in and like five question marks, maybe like a couple people moving their way into like solid position, but he had seven guys that were in solid position. He's got John Rahm, Roy McIlroy, Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, Tyrrell Hatton, Tommy Fleetwood, Justin Rose, Shane Lowry, uh, I guess Victor Hovland. So maybe that was eight. And so he's just really looking at like four real question marks and uh, honestly looking at a bunch of guys who had not solidified themselves. Ludwig Aberg, we talked about him. He's somewhat solidifying himself. Adrian Moronk from Poland, somewhat solidifying himself. Aaron Rye, somewhat solidifying himself. But then you look down the list and it's like, gosh, none of these guys are making plays. You kind of have to look a ways down the list for Seth Straka, and then you have to look a lot further down the list for Rasmus Hoygaard. So essentially Luke Donald just gained two extra question marks, which you want to have if you are a captain – you want to have options. You don't want to feel forced into doing anything. Frankly, given all the live golf uh, upheaval and the you know the potential partnership, you're you're Luke Donald. You want something that is clean, simple, straightforward. You want people that are making plays, making your job easier. And so these guys are making it easier. It will get harder, right? Um, if we add any more victories from question marks on this list, if you if you add a Padraig Harrington senior open championship victory, things like that will make his job more difficult, but it becomes difficult only at the end in August, right? And early September. So for now they make his job easier. They give him a couple more names to think about. And for the euros, that is a good thing. Question two, was this the best 62 of Sepp Straka's life or the worst? Well, it's a results-oriented game out here, results-oriented business. And as a result of that, it was the best 62 of Sepp Straka's life because he won the golf tournament. There is a world where he could have shot 62 and not won the golf tournament. So if you didn't watch the John Deere Classic this week, Sepp Straka, the Austrian slash Southerner, started the round uh, several shots off the pace and got off to a wicked hot start. Birdie one, eagled two, parred three, birdied four, parred five, birdied six, seven, parred eight, birdied nine. So he goes out in seven under, then he reels off four consecutive birdies on 11 through 14 on the back. So he's 11 under through 14 holes. He's now got the lead by four or five shots. And the only question now is, it's not even, oh, is this guy going to shoot 59? It's like, is this guy going to shoot 57? He didn't shoot 57. Instead, he got to the 18th fairway, needing to make birdie to shoot 59 because he had just missed a short birdie look at 17. 
Um, but there's water lurking left by the 18th green. I think the wind was helping a little bit right to left and Sep had a seven iron and he started it just right of the flag and just overcooked it, hooked this thing into the water, was not even really close, splashed in the lake. So now suddenly he goes from having this uh, four-shot lead to now he has to do well just to make double. And credit to him, he rebounded with a good full wedge from 100 yards. He hit it in, had a good look for bogey, actually. Walks off with double. And at that point, you're thinking this is the worst 62 because the way that ended was horrendous. I mean, it's the one place you can't miss there. It's especially the place you can't miss when you're nursing a four-shot lead and you know that guys are coming and they are coming with birdies on their mind. Brendan Todd at that point was within striking distance. So was Alex Smalley. Um, But as it turned out, that number, Sepp Straka posted at 21 under, was more than good enough. Brendan Todd got close. He got to 20 under through 14, parred 15, and then uh, missed a short par putt on 16. So at that point, he dropped back to 19. And when he failed to birdie the par 5 17th, that was it. That was all. Sepp Straka was a champion. Uh, interesting side note, he had a familiar face, familiar calves, really, on his bag Dwayne Bach, who you know as Kevin Kisner's caddy. Uh, I, From what I understand, the original plan was that he would be on loan from Kisner for the John Deere and for the Open Championship. I don't know if that will have changed. <laughs> I mean, now that he's now that he's a champion with him on the bag. But nice little win for Dwayne, too, because uh, his, his usual horse, Kevin Kisner, has been struggling a little bit so uh this probably came at a right at the right time whatever he got for winning maybe 1.5 million dollars 1.3 million dollars i think a nice chunk of that goes to the looper who who must have done something right so best 62 of sep straka's life but he needed some help from other guys to make that the case question number two another Ryder cup question uh maybe that's all we talk about this time of year maybe that's the only thing that matters but the question is, what needs to happen for Patrick Reed to make the Ryder Cup team? That would be the American Ryder Cup team, unless he has recently established a new passport of some sort, um, which is something I might do. My passport's running up, and I just keep spending my summers in the UK, so maybe they'll grant me something special. But for Patrick Reed to be on a Ryder Cup team, he has one way of doing it, and it's to win the open championship to win the British open. That is, it's the only way it's going to happen. Um, now Patrick Reed fans, I don't, don't know how many of them listen to the, to the drop zone, but, um, they, they would be annoyed at that. They think, Hey, P Reed just finished second at live London. Hey, P Reed's been playing well this year. Hey, P Reed finished in the top four at the masters. Come on, give my, give my man a look. This is captain America. This is a guy that used to be, unbeatable with Jordan Spieth as his teammate this is a guy who gets up for this event unlike anyone else you put the flag on his back right this is this is the guy that's going to do it for you that was all like really accurate like eight years ago (laughs) or seven years ago like 2016 Hazeltine Captain America was beating down Rory McIlroy in the Sunday singles Uh, he was teaming up with Jordan Spieth 
and holding out from the fairway for Eagle. That was the that was Pat peak Patrick Reed. It really was. And two years later at the Ryder Cup in Paris, Patrick Reed <laughs> he paired up with Tiger Woods and did not break eighty. It looked like Captain America wasn't going to be undefeated. He was not going to be powerful forever, and he just lost it a bit. And frankly, he's not a top fifteen golfer on the in the planet, on the planet in the world. He's not a top twenty golfer in the world. He's probably in the look twenty five to thirty to thirty five range, which would get you a look most years. Keegan Bradley's kind of been in that zone a lot this year. Ricky Fowler has been in that zone at certain points this year. They've both played their way higher than that zone. But um, if you are going to make the U.S. Ryder Cup team, period, you have to be a top 25 player in the world, no doubt about it. And if you're going to make the U.S. Ryder Cup team from Live Golf, you have to be playing well outside of Live Golf events. I think the only Live Golfer at this point who is – Guaranteed to be on that team is Brooks Kepka, and we know what he's done in the majors this year. T2, 1, and T17 at LACC, and uh, he's also won a live golf event this year. So Brooks is back. Patrick Reed's have a hard time looking at him and saying he's back. Um, so he has to win the Open, no doubt about it. There's The next live event after the Open is not until August, and they're going to be solidifying the top six point getters for the Ryder Cup team, I think like a couple weeks after that, maybe like one week after that. So this team's going to be shaped up by then, and the only thing that, that Reed can do is actually win. But what's interesting about that is he actually probably has a decent chance. Lake will be firm, fast. It's a course that uh, at 15 under probably is going to win. 12, 14, 15, 16 under, uh, 16 under one for both Tiger and Rory. The last two times we took an open there. Uh, I think that plays into, into P Reed's uh, potential for success. And I think the other thing is that on a firm, fast, baked out golf course, he's got nasty hands. Patrick Reed's like skill set is born out of getting up and down uh, insane short game. In the wind, fast conditions, you got to chip it close, tight lies. You certainly like his chances, uh, the way he's playing. But, again, we're talking about making the Ryder Cup team. You're you're trying to grab one spot out of probably three that are available, and you're going to be competing with like Justin Thomas and Colin Morikawa. So that, that's what the deal is here. Third question from Sean. I just read the other day about your battle against Vegas Johnny from your book. So here Sean is referencing the best-selling, well, depends on the definition, but a a book that I wrote called 18 in America, which uh, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you've probably heard about, but it's about the year I spent living out of my car and driving around the country playing 18 holes in every state in America at 18 years old. Anyway, Sean says, did you ever feel like just calling it even with this guy, Vegas Johnny? Because it sounded like this guy had some demons. This is just a naked plug for my book here, which I really appreciate. You guys should should go purchase it. Available on Kindle. 
the funny thing about this, and the, really the only reason I'm answering it, because it, I don't really just want to like get into self-indulgent talk about a book I wrote, but it's a funny thing the way we remember stuff. And what this made me think is how surreal that year is and almost more surreal because I spent so much time thinking about it in the couple of years afterwards, writing about it. And now over a decade later, it's, it's not quite like it happened to someone else, but it does feel more like a highlight reel than it does. Oh yeah. That's something that's just in my memory. And it strikes me that that must be uh, just some small percentage of the way professional athletes think about and talk about things that have happened to them in the past. I mean, if you, this, this was only something that happened, you know, 10, 10, 13 years ago, I guess we asked guys, we asked Tiger Woods to reflect on things that happened in the early two thousands in the late nineties. Uh, we ask older golfers to reflect on events from the seventies and eighties. And at a certain point, you know, that it's happened to you, but you don't necessarily, you're remembering it the way you've thought about it and consumed it since then. So it's, you know, there's a certain degree of separation between the feeling at the time and what exists in your mind now when you access it. I don't know, maybe this is now devolving into the sort of like existential boring mind dump that happens when I don't have Sean here to check me, but... um. But yeah, at a certain point in the match with this guy, Vegas Johnny, who had no relation to Johnny Vegas. This was just a nickname I had for this guy in my head. At the time, I had no idea that a guy named Johnny Vegas existed. Um, but yeah, you got to read the book. But it, I was in desperate straits. And once I realized this bizarre situation that I was in as just a stupid, naive 18-year-old in way over his head, way too bold I would have gladly just pressed rewind on the whole experience pretended it never happened walked off all even um you know for for much of the match I think that would have felt like a a win for me um it didn't turn out that way go check it out question three what did you learn from live London how did it compare to last year uh Frankly, I got so busy this weekend that I did not get out to live London during the championship. So I don't have a lot of information about what it looked like when they really like turned the lights on. I was there on Wednesday and Thursday in the the preamble, the pro am, uh, and then the press conferences, and they're you know they're kind of shaping up what the everything needs to look like. Um, but so, so my takeaway is from Wednesday and Thursday, my takeaway is that this whole reintegrating thing is going to get messy. It's just going to be messy. Uh, it, it sort of feels like live golfers are a bit scorned about what they've had to go through the last 12 to 13 months. Um, it was the first time that we went back to a live golf uh, event, like host, a course that hosted a live event last year. This is our first time going back. And so our, it was our first time to see how things would be similar and different. A lot of it was similar. Um, some of the build out of buildings and, you know, corporate seating, I guess was different. 
um, you know, the mottos of the teams, the flags, the the players' faces are a lot more visible than they were last year when things were kind of just getting started. But like, obviously, demonstrably different is the feeling with the press, the the questions that were being asked, the interviews, the press conferences. Players even made a joke about it all at times. I know Liv Staffers kind of joked about it, like, yeah, gosh, you guys are treating us different this year. And <laughs> oh, my response to that is like, yeah, duh. No shit. things are different this year. Gosh, it's like so much has changed in the last six weeks that it's not even worth comparing truly to last year. But anyway, my point about reintegration being messy is that these guys feel a bit scorned. They feel like they really, really went through something super difficult in how they were treated, how they were perceived. Um, Graham McDowell thinks that there, there, there has been some media coverage of it, of him, of live golfers that was unfair. Bubba Watson was upset basically saying, you know, it didn't feel good to see all that name calling. He kept saying that name calling, um, Ian Poulter uh, was citing the recent legal documents that were released um, that were not supposed to be released. They were released by mistake. These are confidential PGA Tour documents, but they were out. And Ian, Ian Poulter was just like, why aren't you guys covering this? There's a lot of stuff in there. You guys have been given something really special. Uh, and, and he has a point there. But the point that he's really trying to make is like, you guys really dug up some shit on us last year. Now you have a chance to do that on other people, do that on the PGA Tour, do that against PGA Tour players. And, yeah, he feels like he's kind of dealt with some stuff. Um, he and, and Lee Westwood and Henrik Stenson and the Majestics, got to give them kudos. They went out of their way. They had a press conference. They had you know, a little informal thing after the press conference, and then they had a 45-minute casual conversation with probably a dozen media members uh, off the back of the driving range. We all sat down on this little like Majestics branded uh, lounge area and just kind of hashed out a bunch of stuff, you know, it was kind of fair game. They were casual, we were casual, but we really got into like 45 minutes. It was like a group podcast and it was almost like a, a group therapy session too. Um, but what I found to be interesting is that they are, of course, somewhat interested in getting back onto the DP World Tour. Playing in DP World Tour events, they are not members of that at that tour at this point, so they are, they're really not willing to comment on the tour. That's what Lee Westwood keeps saying. He's like, well, I'm not a member, so I can't comment. But there are events they miss. They miss playing uh, in the BMW PGA Championship at Wentworth. There are a handful of events they would for sure like to play in, and what does the partnership mean for that? You know, um, they they are saying, Lee Westwood is saying he's paid his fines. Well, the DP World Tour has been saying, no, you kind of owe us like 400,000 pounds, which is a huge discrepancy on what I owe you versus what you think you owe. Um, and so what are the reparations, if any, that will be paid from either side? Ian Poulter says, me and Lee Westwood we add value to your tournament. That's his opinion. Uh, I think that is certainly the case for British events, uh, probably the case for European tour events. I don't think that's necessarily the case for the Valspar Championship, 
to pick a random uh, average tour event. So I don't know. It's just going to get hairy, you know. And the other thing about this all is that these guys are going to be evaluated kind of in a lump sum. But each different player has a different value when they get reintegrated. And they have done different things uh, in their departure to earn kind of respect and that valuation. Brooks Kepka has been different than Phil Mickelson, who has been different than Dustin Johnson, who has been different than Poulter Westwood Stenson. And, um, you know, there's, there's going to be a clientele that are currently PGA Tour members that want these guys back. If we are talking about a for-profit company, I've talked to tour players who say, no, yeah, we, we, we need Brooks Kepka back on this tour. If we're going to make money and, and we're going to try to have the biggest purses and, and sponsors that are willing to pay for this, non-profit or this for-profit entity right we're trying to make bucks we need brooks kepka out there so there's gonna be a bit of a tug of war push and pull evaluating all kinds of different things that could get hairy and um that'll be interesting we'll definitely cover the hell out of it for golf.com question four what is something you're sad you missed from the u.s women's open um there are a lot of things Pebble Beach is so cool. I've never played the golf course, but I was there at the 2019 U.S. Open where Gary Woodland won, and it was such a delight to be on the Monterey Peninsula. It is, gosh, it's heaven over there. Um, And so (laughs) in a perfect world, I am not in London. I'm in uh, Western California and loving uh, just existing over there. But what's something I'm really sad I missed is nerding out about the golf course in a slightly different way. Like, I don't really know if, if this comes across on our podcast, but I really nerd out about golf courses and shot link and, you know, where shots are being played from the statistics of shots, uh, strokes gained around the green versus putting versus off the tee and who that matters to players and their typical averages and all that stuff. But Pebble beach is one of the, Gosh, probably 10 best golf courses in the world. At the very least, it is a top 15 golf course in the world. And it is as recognizable. I think it has as recognizable shots as any non-Augusta National course on the planet. And I think that that would have been really fun to dive into how these shots are being played differently by women, how they're being played exactly the same by women, right? Which places on the golf course can you get to from different tee boxes with the female game that you do with the men's game? Um, the eighth hole, for example, is one of the best golf holes on the planet. And how does it play differently for men versus women? Um, the, you know, this is the first women's open with shot link. So this was always going to be a big deal. But like, what clubs did they hit into the 10th hole? What is the distance that they're playing uh, the 17th hole at, that long par three? And is it a four iron or is it a hybrid? Um, or is it a six iron? I, don't, I, I didn't really know. I didn't get any of that. But, yeah, I really kind of wish I could have seen a lot more of those side-by-side images because this was the first women's open at Pebble. And the next one, as much as we've, we've kind of outlaid, like, a number of women's opens to come, the next one's not for 12 years, 2035. And that's a long way from now. Last question is another good one. Um, Pretty generic one, but it is give me one reason why we should be hyped 
for the Open Championship that uh, people are not thinking of. I'm going to kind of speak to something I already said um, because I'm very hyped for the Open, but I've got the Scottish Open this week. I've got a lot of people to talk to. I'll probably get more hyped in the coming days, but as of right now, I'm kind of just viewing this as potentially the end of an era. Like the next major championship, the Masters 2024, is nine months from now. Presumably a PGA Tour public investment fund in Saudi Arabia. Presumably that partnership goes through. Uh, Maybe it doesn't, but either way, I think there's going to be more acceptance of anything in our world at that point. Um, There will be information. We won't be in such a uh, a time of confusion and question marks. Um, But right now, a lot of question marks exist. And I think that that is kind of fun because... What if Cam Smith wins? What if he doubles up? What if he goes back-to-back at the old course in Hoylake? Because he's playing well. <laughs> he just won the live event here in, in London. Dustin Johnson's playing well, too. Patrick Reed, playing well. Brooks Kepka exists. Bryson DeChambeau, on the rise. The, the bargaining that I was talking about earlier, the reintegrating, that isn't nearly as big as is what really matters when we're evaluating these things in like what I mean is the the Saudi investment is going to come off of evaluation. Live golf is going to be evaluated as an asset. Who plays on that tour is going to be, you know, a token essentially in the Saudi's pocket there will be a token at the negotiating table. And so what does that, how many tokens are there, right? How many chips are being put on the table so that when Yasser Al-Ramayan goes all in, he says, you know, this thing's worth $4 billion, that, you know, Jay Monahan and Ed Hurley and Jimmy Dunn can say, call, you know, or not call. Uh, we call your bluff or we we raise the ante right <laughs> using poker terminology that's kind of escaping my head at this point at 6 30 in the morning but the whole point is hey this is what we're worth over here and that valuation only rises if you get two major champions in a four major season that are live golfers and i feel like there's more confidence more plausibility more expectation during this major than maybe any of the others that we've seen this year. And that will be fun. And um, then we'll talk about it uh, incessantly about was it a live golf year? Was it a PGA tour year? Um, And also, you know, behind the scenes, all of that is just Scotty Scheffler playing some of the best golf we've ever seen. And my question mark is, will he be happy if he doesn't win a major this year? That's it for me. Thank you, Dylan, for the questions. I got to get in an Uber to get to a train, to get to Scotland, to get in a Genesis vehicle, to get over to Renaissance Club, and say hi to my PGA Tour friends. See you guys.